This week, Asina Retail Global Eagle filed for Chapter 11. Hertz, U.S. ABS lenders agreed to delay hearing on rejection motion. More on all this and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Mark Fisher. And I'm Raksha Manjana. This week's deep dive features a replay of our webinar discussing the Chesapeake Energy Chapter 11, including an analysis of the debtor's assets and legal analysis around options for unsecured creditors. It's Sunday, July 26th. A senior retail group, the owner of nationwide brands including Ann Taylor, Loft, and Lane Bryant, filed for Chapter 11 in the Eastern District of Virginia. The debtors entered bankruptcy with an RSA supported by lenders holding 68% of their $1.6 billion secured term loan facility and a commitment for $311.8 million in dip financing, including $150 million in new money and up to $161.8 million of rolled-up prepetition loans. The debtors attribute the filing to the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, which were exacerbated by their, quote, already high, highly levered balance sheet and the macroeconomic challenges of the brick-and-mortar retail industry. The debtors expect store revenue to decline 36% in fiscal 2020, offset by a 5% increase in e-commerce sales. EBITDA is expected to be negative $295 million on revenue of $3.6 billion and a gross margin of 49.3% in fiscal 2020 and turning positive in 2022. To preserve liquidity, the debtors say they have extended vendor terms to 60 to 90 days, stopped paying rent, and engaged A&G to negotiate rent reductions. The RSA contemplates $75 million of the new money portion of the dip will be provided by certain of the supporting lenders, with the remaining $75 million to be open to all term lenders and backstop by the supporting lenders. Lenders who participate in the dip would receive their pro rata share of 44.9% of the reorganized equity. In addition, all term lenders would receive their share of 55.1% of reorganized equity and 88.2 million of new second out term loans. Reorg learned that Brown Rudnick is representing a minority term lender that takes issue with the fact that half of the new money portion is being reserved for the backstop group and will host an organization call with non-RSA term lenders on Monday. ABL lenders would be paid in full, including a $50 million paydown for the new money dip. According to the first day declaration, the debtors are in discussions with the ABL lenders regarding an additional $400 million in financing, which would be provided either as a dip ABL that would roll into an exit facility or at emergence. The debtors say they intend to use the Chapter 11 process to reduce store account to about $1,200 from about eight. Uh, 2800 depending on landlord rent concessions. The debtors have also agreed to sell the intellectual property of Catherine's Inc. to City She Collective Limited, which would transition the Catherine's brand into an e-commerce subsidiary. The debtors' justice brand will transition to a wholly online operation. Global Eagle Entertainment Inc., a provider of entertainment for the airline and cruise ship markets, entered into an RSA on Wednesday with an investor group holding approximately 90% of its senior secured first lien term loans that provides for a $675 million purchase of substantially all of the company's assets by the group. The group, including Apollo, Eaton Vance, Arbor Lane, Soundpoint, Mudrick, and BlackRock, will provide $80 million in dip financing and serve as a stocking horse bidder. Global Eagle also says it expects to implement a $125 million exit facility, which would include the assumption or refinancing of the dip facility, as well as a take-back financing facility of $275 million. The proposed transaction to be implemented through a Section 363 sale would reduce Global Eagle's total debt by about $745 million, according to the company. CFO Christian Mesguer stated in his first day declaration that the debtor's cash flow problems predated the COVID-19 pandemic. The company generated negative cash flows in both 2018 and 2019, primarily due to significant debt interest payments. Nevertheless, Metzger asserted, quote, The extraordinary surge of the COVID-19 pandemic, which significantly reduced worldwide travel and resulted in both government and business-imposed travel restrictions, was the most significant factor leading to the Chapter 11 filing. Most of the debtors' airline and cruise customers temporarily ceased and or severely reduced operations due to the pandemic, which significantly diminished the benefits of the debtors' credit agreement amendment, he stated. The effects of the pandemic were mitigated somewhat by the company's operational strength, which is a revenue model that relies primarily on fixed monthly recurring charges, instead of a usage-based payment model, Mesger notes. 
He notes that the pre-petition negotiations with Searchlight and an ad hoc convertible group had stalled. While the RSA provides for a Section 363 sale and certain exit facilities in connection therewith, including take-back debt and refinancing of the debt facility, it does not outline the treatment for second lien or convertible note claims. The sale terms generally provide, however, that the investors will fund a wind-down of the debtor's estate after the sale transaction. According to the term sheet, the stocking horse bid does not include a breakup fee, but does include expense reimbursement for the group to the extent not otherwise paid in connection with the dip financing. The Hertz debtors filed a notice in form of agreed order providing an interim resolution through December 31st of a number of issues in connection with their vehicle lease rejection motion with Deutsche Bank as agent for the VFN notes, Bank of New York Mellon as the HVF and HVF2 trustee, and the MTN steering committee. The parties have agreed to adjourn the hearing on the rejection motion until at least January 15, 2021. Quote, among other things, the agreed order sets the debtor's cash payments for the remainder of 2020, provides a minimum number of vehicle dispositions, provides for how the proceeds of those vehicle dispositions shall be utilized, provides for super priority administrative claims in respect to vehicle casualties, provides a mechanism for the debtors for to repurchase or lease additional vehicles from HVF if necessary, provides information rights for the parties, provides for the payment of certain fees of the ABS parties, and contains a broad reservation of rights that preserves the rights of all parties and interests with respect to the master lease agreement, adequate protection, recharacterization, and related issues according to the notice. Under the agreement between June 1st and December 31st, the debtors will dispose of at least 182,521 lease vehicles, at least 154,903 of which will be non-program vehicles. Hertz in its capacity as servicer will remit all disposition proceeds and also make a total of $650 million in base rent payments to the HFF HVF trustee in six equal monthly payments of $108.3 million starting in July through the remainder of the year. The Hertz debtors received approval of the agreed order on Friday. Judge Mary Walrath said, I do like to see peace break out. On the island of Puerto Rico, the administration of Governor Wanda Vasquez on Thursday filed legislation proposing a constitutional amendment that would put public pensions on par with Commonwealth debt at the top of Puerto Rico's payment waterfall, including a bill and related concurrent resolution. Both measures, which were filed July 21st and assigned to the House Retirement Systems and Veterans Affairs Committee and House Government Committee, are slated to be taken up during the tw- ongoing 20-day special session convened by the governor that started this week. Both House Bill 2584 and House Concurrent Resolution 127 call for a referendum as part of the number 3 general election on an amendment to Section 8, Article 6 of the Puerto Rico Constitution that would read, in case the available revenues including surplus for any fiscal year are insufficient to meet the appropriations made for that year, interest on public debt and amortization thereof and the payments of pensions of all retirees from public service who were participants in the government employee report retirement system, the judiciary retirement system, and the teacher's retirement system, or any other retirement system of the state created by law, shall first be paid, and other disbursements shall thereafter be made in accordance with the order of priorities established by law. House Concurrent Resolution 127 also backs an amendment that the Constitution's Article 2 Bill of Rights to add to Section 16 the following language. Furthermore, the right of all public servants and all retirees of the government of Puerto Rico to have access to a retirement pension, the terms and conditions of which shall be provided by law and may only be modified with the purpose of favoring it, is recognized. Late last Friday, Monoline Insurers Ambac Assured Financial Guarantee Insurance Co. and National filed an urgent motion seeking appointment as trustees under Section 926 of the Bankruptcy Code to pursue certain avoidance actions on behalf of Puerto Rico Highways and Transportation Authority against the Commonwealth. The motion attaches a proposed complaint detailing the claims of the, the monolines would pursue. The motion alleges that the HTA's finances have been, quote, devastated in an ongoing scheme by the Oversight Board and the Commonwealth Government through unlawful Commonwealth legislation and executive orders that are expressly preempted by Section 303 of PROMISA, as well as various purported fiscal plans and budgets that likewise violate PROMISA and other binding law. The monolines argue that, quote, these efforts to strip HTA of its 
property and divert HDA's revenue to the Commonwealth coffers have rendered the corporation little more than an insolvent empty shell, unable to pay its debt service, maintain the island's infrastructure, or even fund its own operations in the absence of future largesse from the Commonwealth that may never come. For example, the motion notes that the most recent HDA fiscal plan projects that the HDA will have a total cash flow of only $860 million during the entire five-year period from fiscal 2021 to 2025. And over that same period, HDA has or will incur $1.272 billion in operating expenses. The Monalines maintain that the Oversight Board as HDA's representative has quote, allowed the destruction and divestment that has befallen HTA, notwithstanding the oversight board is supposed to serve as a responsible steward of the entity. The motion asserts that the oversight board has been overseeing the unlawful diversion of HTA's resources to the Commonwealth, which FOMB also represents. The Monolines argue that through this motion, they aim to remove the untenable conflict of interest and restore HDA's property for the benefit of HDA's bondholders and all who rely on the highways and infrastructure that HDA builds and maintains. The DRA parties filed a joinder to the motion, asserting that as HTA's most significant creditor, they have a direct stake in the resolution of any avoidance actions brought on behalf of the HTA against the Commonwealth. The DRA parties assert that the Promisa Oversight Board's failure to bring avoidance actions on behalf of HTA reflects the board's, quote, irretrievable conflict of interest in simultaneously representing the Commonwealth and HTA, therefore warranting an appointment of a Section 926 trustee. Other top stories this past week were Briggs & Stratton, world's largest producer of gasoline engines for outdoor power equipment, files in Eastern District of Missouri, anticipates $550 million sale to KPS Capital Affiliate. C-Drill Partners, ad hoc group of term loan B lenders, reach agreement to remove potential event of default for skip July 1 interest payment. Educational travel provider Lakeland Tours files prepackaged Chapter 11 in the Southern District of New York. And now, as always, here's Jim from Houston with a week ahead. Well, thank you all. Good morning from Houston, where it's hurricane season. Nothing named has developed yet out there in the Gulf, but we are getting sheets of black rain definitely drenching the bayous. And so let's see what's happening this week. Monday, July 27th, CBL's forbearance expires again. There's an order to show cause hearing in PG&E, the utility that helps Hollywood crank out endless remakes of subpar cinema, store closing motion in Neiman Marcus, and earnings because it's earnings season from Albertsons and Martin Midst. Stream. Tuesday, July 28th, DS hearing in Neiman, mediation hearing in Sable Permian, and an omnibus in Intel SAP with earnings from Avis, among others. Wednesday, July 29th, lawyers start your meters. It's packed with activity, including J.C. Penny stay relief hearing. Second day in Covia and omnibuses in Zohar, Frontier, and PES, among others, with earnings from Tupperware, Terraform, Transform, excuse me, Transocean, and Tudor Perini. Well, there's some alliteration. It will make James Elroy green with envy. On Thursday, July 30th, we have hearings in Centric, Alta Mesa, confirmation hearings in Pier 1 and New Katai, and some litigation in Sanchez Energy. There's earnings, including CNX, Calfrac, and Cleveland Cliffs, and considerably more. Please see our weekly forward, always bright and early every Monday morning for all the details. There's also grace period ending for Denberry and Jay Jill, a forbearance expiration. And Friday, July 31st, there's a grace period expiration Expiration for Chaparral, Lone Star, and Tailored Brands, Forbearance Expirations in Feral Gas Partners, Fieldwood, and SA Exploration. And there's hearings in Diamond Offshore, Chesapeake, and Unit Corp. And no more from me. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. And up next, we have Back by Popular Demand, replay of Andrew Sung and Sean Daly's webcast on Chesapeake. If you heard it once, you may want to listen again. It's like the time in 1977 I saw Zeppelin first in Cincinnati and then in Louisville. Take it away, boys. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us on today's installment of the Reorg webinar series. Uh, today, we will discuss the recent Chapter 11 filing of Chesapeake Energy. Uh, I'm Andrew Sung, a distressed debt analyst for America's Core Credit by Reorg. And joining me on today's webinar is distressed debt legal analyst Sean Daly. Please note that if you'd like to revisit this webinar later, a replay of today's discussion will be available on the Reorg media page within 24 hours. So, um, 
So today's discussion will be slightly different from other Chapter 11 overview webinars we've done in the past. Um, the Chesapeake RSA has been out for weeks now, uh, where many of you have had the opportunity to read through everything. Uh, and we've had a number of productive conversations with our clients uh, raising a number of important questions. Uh, so today we wanted to go a little more in-depth in addressing some of the issues that have come up uh, in addition to some of the questions that we still have. Um, so today we're going to give a brief overview of the company and the contemplated plan uh, per the RSA while going in-depth to sharing our methodology on asset valuation and recovery analysis, uh, helping to provide some context to the RSA. And Sean is going to take it a step further by discussing many of the legal nuances in this case in addition to some of the plan considerations as the plan progresses, as the case progresses. Uh, we will answer questions at the end of the presentation, so please feel free to submit questions at any time using the Q&A widget, which is located on the left-hand left side of your screen. Okay, so just a quick overview here. Um, Chesapeake is an upstream E&P oil and gas operator, which filed for Chapter 11 on June 28. Uh, the debtors operate in multiple U.S. onshore regions. Uh, their gas-centric assets consist of the Marcellus in the Appalachian Basin in Pennsylvania and the Haynesville located in the Gulf Coast region in Louisiana. The debtors' more oil-centric assets are located in Texas, in the Eagle Fur and Brazos Valley, in the Mid-Continent in Oklahoma, and in the Powder River Basin in Wyoming. Prior to the drop in oil prices back in March, uh, as we all know, resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic and the crude oil supply dispute between Saudi Arabia and Russia, uh, Chesapeake had looked to shift its portfolio to be more oil-centric. So in February 2019, uh, the company acquired its Brazos Valley assets through its acquisition of Wild Horse Resources Development, in part to shift its portfolio to a more oil-heavy mix. Uh, but with recent events, as gas prices have proven to be relatively more resilient than oil prices, uh, the company recently disclosed the shift to focus back on its gas-centric assets. So on the table on the right, which was included in the company's cleansing materials, uh, the debtors are planning to only drill new wells for the remainder of 2020 in the Marcellus and the Haynesville while suspending drilling of new wells in its oil-centric assets. So on this slide, uh, we're just showing uh, a summary outline uh, of the pre-petition capital structure and the contemplated plan of reorganization per the RSA. Uh, Sean will cover this in more detail later, but at a high level, the RSA parties consist of 100% of pre-petition revolving lenders, 87% of term loan lenders, 60% of secondary note holders, and 27% of senior unsecured note holders. $925 million of new money dip financing commitments are being provided by certain pre-petition revolving lenders, while $1.179 billion of pre-petition revolver borrowings are being rolled up into the dip. The dip facility will convert into the exit facilities upon emergence, and the RSA contemplates the dip to be partially paid with an unspecified amount of proceeds from the rights offering and with cash on hand. The remaining non-roll-up portion of the pre-petition revolver, consisting of $750 million plus $74 million in letters of credit, will convert into the exit RBL facility. Moving down the capital structure, everything below the pre-petition revolver will be equitized and will have the opportunity to, con to contribute new money equity uh, through either participation in the $600 million rights offering or through the exercise of warrants at certain strike prices. We've included the pre-dilution equity splits here, but given some of the rights offering and warrant dynamics, uh, those would be subject to post-dilution adjustment. So here, uh, as we move to this part of the discussion, uh, the tables shown and the numbers referenced are all available in the Excel waterfall model that were uploaded to the reorg site yesterday. Uh, so just taking a look at the reorganized capital structure here, um, it, uh, the RSA contemplates that it will consist of $1.75 billion exit RBL with an unspecified split between a tranche A revolver and a tranche B term loan. Uh, in addition, there will be a $750 million exit FILO term loan facility. All the lenders on these, these uh, post-emergence exit facilities uh, will be pre-petition revolving lenders and BIP lenders. 
so our assumptions on total debt outstanding on the plan effective date uh, here incorporate assumptions that are made in the debtor's projections. Uh, in addition, we're making the assumption that all $600 million of the rights offering proceeds are used to pay down the debt facility. We actually don't know at this point what that number is going to be, but uh, at the moment we're just assuming that all 600 are, are going to pay that down. And uh, the RSA also contemplates uh, the $600 million rights offering at a post-new money plan value of $3.25 billion, which implies a post-new money equity valuation of $1.456 billion. So here on this slide, uh, we show the equity splits being allocated to the respective creditor groups, uh, which incorporates the dilution from the $600 million rights offering. The backstop commitment parties to the rights offering consist of the ad hoc uh, Termo and Lender Group and Franklin Advisors. Uh, the new money breakdown, uh, which is not shown on this slide, uh, consists of $25 million to be contributed by the backstop parties, 6375 Sorry, 25% to be contributed by the backstop parties, 63.75% to be contributed by the non-backstop FILO term loan lenders, and 11.25% to be contributed by the non-backstop secondly note holders. The backstop parties will also receive a commitment fee equal to 10% of the rights offering uh, to be paid in, in equity. It is important to note that uh, while $600 million of new money equity is being contributed through the rights offering, uh, the RSA contemplates that such contribution will actually be at a 35% discount to plan equity value, uh, which implies that the rights offering participants will actually receive approximately $923 million of equity value for $600 million of new money contributed. Uh, and then off uh, to the right in the blue box are the equity splits uh, adjusted for the rights offering, but pre-dilution for any warrant exercise. So uh, as we try to answer the question as to which uh, constituents may be getting a more favorable treatment under the RSA versus others, uh, we often like to compare absolute priority recoveries versus actual contemplated plan recoveries. And obviously, a critical component to this is valuing the assets. So we had published an analysis back in April which estimated the value of Chesapeake's assets region by region. And uh, an updated Excel model is included in the upload to the REARC site uh, from yesterday, which links this asset valuation model to the claims waterfall. So really what we did is the first step, we wanted to assess the pro-well economics by each region. Uh, in other words, at what commodity price does it make sense for Chesapeake to drill a new well? Uh, drilling a new well is, is very capital intensive as the pre-production cost of drilling and completing the well can cost several million dollars. The reason why E&P operations are so capital intensive is that each well's production declines precipitously in the first 12 months of the well life. So if an operator wants to maintain production levels, new wells need to be drilled to replace existing production. This dynamic is illustrated in the decline curve shown in the graphic on the right-hand side. Uh, so in assessing pro-well economics, uh, all it really is is a discounted cash flow model over the life of the well, uh, which generally spans multiple years, sometimes multiple decades. Um, so in our example, we're assuming uh, a well life of 360 months. And the cash flows are simply, uh, you know, at time zero, there are pre-production drilling and completion costs being incurred. And then for each month of production, the operator sells such production at the prevailing commodity strip price, less operating costs and production taxes, uh, with the rates of production being dictated by the decline curves, as we show here on the right. Uh, and then you simply just sum the present value of every cash flow, which results in an estimated uh, NPV or net present value. And so in this graphic here, we've shown an, an example of the Marcellus region, uh, but we actually did this for every operating region for the company for both oil and for gas. Um, a quick point on methodology uh, as far as how we built the decline curves. Uh, we used county-by-county county data that was provided by uh, the USEIA, uh, in addition to individual Chesapeake well data provided by the respective state oil and gas commissions uh, to then build these illustrated decline curves for each of Chesapeake's uh, operating regions. So on the next slide, 
so here we're showing the illustrative pro well new economics, uh, just a summary here. And really what this concludes is that um, in case two, uh, which is shown, or in case two shown below, which is at current strip prices for Henry Hub and WTI oil, only new wells drilled in the Marcellus would be economical. And then at slightly higher natural gas prices, new wells drilled in the Haynesville would also be economical. Um, just a note that a lot of this, um, in addition to commodity price assumptions, uh, one of the largest drivers of assumptions around uh, new well economics are the drilling and completion costs, uh, the capex incurred sort of pre-production. Uh, and in Chesapeake's case, you know, we estimate that cost by region to be anywhere from five to ten million dollars. But sensitizing that up or down by a couple million dollars can put a well potentially in or out of the money. Um, so Chesapeake, they provide some information as far as um, over the last three years uh, what their drilling and completion costs were by region and the number of wells that were drilled. And so we sort sort of just took that information to back into an assumption for the DNC cost by region. Uh, but again, those are sort of our assumptions based on uh, what the company has provided. So the conclusion here, again, is that uh, their natural gas assets, the Marcellus and the Haynesville, would be sort of the most economical to drill a new well. And this conclusion has been further validated by, as we discussed earlier, the company's 2020 drilling plans to focus new well drilling in the Marcellus and the Haynesville while they're, they're suspending the drilling of new wells in their oil-centric operating regions. So on this slide, um, we're looking, taking this a step further to effectively try to value what we think the Chesapeake assets are worth. And the way we did this is we're taking the, uh, the decline curves that we had built by region uh, in the pro-well economics and applying that to the company's existing production. So rather than sort of starting at the very top of the decline curve, we're, we're estimating a point on the curve that we believe the wells on average would be, and we're simply running off production from there, assuming no new wells are drilled, thus no additional DNC capex is spent. So as you can see, when you remove DNC capex and simply just take existing production out of the ground from existing wells, um, all of these regions are, are positive NPV per our model. Uh, so case two, shown below, uh, again, is the same. It's current strip price on natural gas and on oil. And then we also sensitize to provide some ranges of value to have uh, natural gas in case one at around $2, oil at around $30, and then case three, sort of a bull case, to have natural gas at around $3 with oil at around $60. So... From that, in the blue box below, you'll see our sum of the parts analysis. We're getting enterprise, we're getting a sum of the parts asset value of you know around 4.6, 4.7 billion, with a range from 3.4 to 6.9 billion. Um, and again, it's sort of our sum of the parts on an asset on an asset level basis. Uh, keep in mind that when we do this analysis, uh, we're not incorporating GNA corporate GNA costs. We're only including the cost incurred at the well level to get the production out of the ground and to get the production to market. So gathering, transportation, processing, et cetera. Um, so one other important point of emphasis is the asset valuation does not provide value for proved undeveloped reserves or PUDs. Uh, so in an effort to sort of be as conservative as possible uh, with respect to what has actually been uh, proven, uh, we're only taking their existing production and running that off. Um, so we're, we'll then use these asset valuations that we found to apply this to the claims waterfall to sort of figure out uh, our, our analysis as far as which creditor groups may be getting a better deal versus others. So this slide, um, we're taking those same asset values that we had shown uh, on the previous slide and applying it to the pre-petition claims waterfall. Um, and important to note that uh, we're using this as an absolute priority framework just sort of as the base case to see, uh, to be able to compare this to the plan value. So again, case two in the middle, which is current strip prices, 
you see that everything through the term loan would be fully covered to where uh, the second lien notes in, in under this scenario would be the fulcrum recovering around uh, 32 cents on the dollar. And then everything below that uh, unsecured claims, preferred equity and equity uh, would, would get nothing. Um, however, under case one, uh, where we have an EV of around 3.4 billion, we actually show that the term loan would be the fulcrum at around 76 cents on the dollar and everything below them would get nothing. And it's interesting to note that the case one is, is actually closest to what the contemplated post-rights offering plan value is um, to where that's sort of a good case to be able to compare to uh, what the RSA is actually contemplating. Uh, on the next slide here, um, we just break out the reorganized equity estimates. So what we're doing here is we're taking, again, the same asset value that we found previously and applying it to the contemplated reorganized capital structure. And through that, we're able to estimate what we think reorganized Chesapeake equity is worth all, all the way at the bottom. So. You, assuming these enterprise values, we're coming up with a range between 1.6 billion to almost 6 billion, um, with a at current strip at, in the middle at around 3.35 billion. Uh, we've also note sort of in the yellow highlighted area in the middle, um, designed the model to be iterative in that uh, it can automatically calculate whether uh, the warrant strikes would be in or out of the money. Uh, and so at certain warrant strikes, new money would be contributed uh, to the company and also all the equity splits would be recalculated as well. So um, so you see here that um, given that all the, um, the, equities, the equity is going to the pre-petition term loan lenders, secondary note holders, senior unsecured note holders and general unsecured claims, uh, they're getting all the re recovery in the form of uh, equity as outlined in the RSA. And then on this slide here, um, we've provided a summary just sort of comparing uh, all the steps up until this point to compare absolute priority versus uh, plan value under the RSA, or plan recoveries vis-a-vis the RSA. So obviously, depending on your assumptions on asset valuation, certain creditors will fare materially better or worse under the RSA than under absolute priority. So if we start on the left-hand side here, uh, case one at an enterprise value of approximately $3.4 billion, which is in line with the contemplated post-rights offering plan value, uh, the term loan lenders appear to be giving away too much equity to junior creditors as under this scenario we model out uh, term loan recoveries to be only around $0.75 cents on the dollar, but then we're also seeing some recovery leakage to the second lien and the unsecured notes and Sean will go into some more detail why as to why potentially uh, a deal was struck to where uh, the term loan lenders are giving away um, some, some equity here. Then as we move over to the middle case two, which we sort of believe is should be uh, closer to the current value uh, given current strip prices, you'll see that uh, the, the second lien note holders actually fare worse than what absolute priority would dictate. And we think that's mainly due to the fact that um, at under the plan, the second lien note holders are given the opportunity to exercise warrants at strikes at four billion and four and a half billion. So effectively, they're continuing to contribute more equity to the company at higher and higher valuations. Where in contrast, if you look under case two. Uh, the, the ad hoc, the backstop group of the term loan lenders uh, fare materially better under the plan than they would under absolute priority. And that's due mainly to uh, rights offering participation and its commitment fee uh, for the backstop. So if we think about rights offering participation, why that's so favorable uh, in this case is they're effectively contributing equity at a much lower valuation of call it 3.2 billion, but also they're contributing that equity at a substantial discount to that plan value. So you see that even further exacerbated in case three here where uh, at a much higher enterprise value, 
of just under seven billion, you see that even while absolute priority would have the second lien notes is potentially fully covered uh, under the plan, um, under the RSA, they would they would actually fare potentially worse under that plan. So I know we covered a lot here. Um, a lot of this is sort of piggybacking off of the model that we had uploaded to uh, the reorg site yesterday. So more than happy to uh, discuss these uh, as questions come up. But now I will turn it over to Sean to discuss some of the legal aspects of the case. Thanks, Andrew. So we'll go over a few legal and, and process considerations today. The RSA proposed plan construct, uh, getting into a couple of the key terms and the, the point that there's sufficient support today to attempt confirmation on a, a non-consensual cram down basis get into uh, what are the potential challenges that could be brought to certain pre-petition transactions. And as Andrew just sort of covered on the last slide, uh, last several slides, plan valuation, uh, we'll get into possible value shifts that could occur as a result of those challenges or negotiation amongst the various parties. And then finally, just end off with a, a quick note on the debtor's operational restructuring initiatives, namely midstream contract rejection. So first, the RSA entered into, Andrew touched upon the support earlier, uh, and just to clarify, 100% of claims of revolving lenders, which also means 100% of revolving lenders, uh, but then the other numbers that the debtors have disclosed are percentages of claims, not holders. Uh, and the, the way the, the proposed plan stands, the uh, RBL claims uh, would still be an impaired voting class. So that's nice. You sort of get two bites at the apple of having, uh, you know, at least one impaired accepting class for confirmation purposes. There is an agreement in the RSA, uh, in the, the DIP as well, not to for the, the parties supporting the RSA to not to challenge any pre-petition liens, including uh, in particular the December 2019 transactions where the, uh, the debtors uh, incurred the FILO and did an up-tier transaction exchanging uh, unsecured notes at a, a discount to face for the new or the current existing second lien obligations. Uh, the, the debtors talk in their first day papers. They say, we used the specter of, of bringing potential preference litigation against these these parties for the liens um, that may not have been perfected within 90 days prior to a filing to drive uh, restructuring negotiations this spring. Um, and then, you know, given, given that degree of, of uh, agreement and this RSA, the debtor sort of held off on filing until they said, you know, oh, the preference window would have, would have passed. Um, but this is an important point leading into the potential challenges uh, because of, of course, the, the debtor said at the first day hearing, uh, it was, you know, well within our, our business judgment to make that decision to attempt to achieve consensus and, you know, sort of implicitly line up the backstop commitment for the rights offering uh, rather than start the case off in a, in a highly litigated position. Uh, but in the, the dip financing, which ties over with the RSA classic, you know, debtor stipulations to the validity of pre-petition liens, uh, interesting to note the challenge period just very quickly measured from the petition date rather than from the date of appointment of uh, an official committee or uh, entry of the interim order, which is essentially the petition date anyway. Uh, but 60 days from the petition date, a little short for the UCC, even shorter for other parties. Uh, so clock is, clock is ticking. Um, and then Briefly, sort of going back to the December 2019 transactions, we've we've fielded a few calls and got into discussion about, well, what can you do to challenge those? Uh, you know, the, the debtors talked about, you know, potential preference actions. I think it's important to note sort of quickly the, the distinction between preference, avoidance of a preference versus avoidance of a, a fraudulent conveyance, two different standards. 
um, you know, a preference is designed to avoid uh, a recovery that would would not be uh, commensurate with the recovery you would have gotten relative to the the class, um, you know, literally being preferred. Whereas fraudulent conveyance doesn't necessarily look to as much of a preferential effect, uh, but has, for instance, you have constructive fraudulent conveyance and actual constructive set is it is an inquiry into whether reasonably equivalent value was obtained by the debtors and whether they were also insolvent. Uh, so sort of, you know, going through, I, I think the one, the one interesting thing that stands out to me is the potential to look at the second lien notes, this up tier exchange and, you know, sort of pick around the edges and say, could you try to avoid those liens as a constructive fraudulent conveyance? Uh, and so going to reasonably equivalent value, the the new notes were issued uh, in a, at a at a discount to face of the notes that were being exchanged in. So you know, the debtors could point to some debt reduction, uh, but not really two other things that debtors might normally point to. Uh, interest savings weren't really interest savings, um, not really a maturity extension. Um, comparing the the maturities for the the old unsecured notes that were exchanged in the second lien, the uh, the sort of the the best facts and not present here, but just for illustration, uh, recently in the McClatchy case, there was a challenge to the granting of liens by subsidiaries that had not previously granted liens under uh, unsecured notes that were only an obligation of the parent. So it was a little bit easier to make the argument there. Hey, you know, these the liens that were granted. What was the reasonably equivalent value? It didn't come from the payment of antecedent debt, which is is normally a good way to demonstrate reasonably equivalent value. Uh, it's slightly different here, but it it gets into the gray area of you know a situation that looks granting liens on debt for certain unsecured holders, uh, you know, would have a preferential effect, but there's, there's a little bit of room to kind of try to rebundle that, um, into a, a reasonably equivalent value argument. Um, one sort of general point I'll, I'll note and why we don't get into a discussion of certain of the other liability management or M&A transactions uh, pre-petition is that, you know, even to prove constructive fraudulent conveyance, one of the, the prongs is insolvency, and there are a number of ways you can get at it. But I think what is a, is a factual matter, one of the, the issues you have with bringing a, a challenge like this is just, you know, it's, it's a very fact-intensive inquiry. Uh, you know, the reasonableness of the debtor's assumptions at the time of any transaction, sort of give them a little bit of cover, you know, valuation changes linked to commodity price volatility mean that, you know, what is what is reasonable at entry into one transaction, you know, in retrospect may not look great, but it, it could have been a, a perfectly reasonable um, stance to take at the time. Uh, my assumption would also be, given that this is a, a company that has been through a number, again, of, of liability management and other transactions in the, the years leading up to the bankruptcy, that hopefully they were good about getting solvency opinions to at least paper things over a little bit from a, you know, a factual record perspective. Um, but at any rate, kind of moving over into... The, the next two notes here, how would you think maybe about other objections that could be brought uh, to the extent that junior constituencies aren't happy with the current state of affairs? Uh, you know, one, one thing that sticks out again is just valuation. So you can make disclosure statement objections uh, to adequate information, although it is not strictly required to file evaluation analysis. In a case where evaluation is under consideration, there could be uh, some complaints, if there isn't one attached to the DS. Uh, 
you know, parties could ask for additional information on how and whether the debtor has evaluated the merit of any potential claims or causes of action pre-petition. There's also this, uh, this additional hook of you can try to argue at the disclosure statement stage that, oh, this, you know, this plan that has been proposed is patently unconfirmable. So you, the debtor should not even be allowed to go ahead with plan solicitation. That's almost more a way to kind of preemptively lob in a confirmation objection and, and just get it percolating. Uh, and then, you know, classic confirmation objections. Uh, one thing that, you know, sticks out, and we'll get back to this in a second, uh, going back to one of Andrew's slides, is looking at certain of the higher cases. You know, if, if you have a belief that valuation is indeed higher than where the debtors are currently saying it is, the corollary to the absolute value rule, or abs excuse me, absolute priority rule, is that no class can receive more than 100%. Uh, so you could you could run into challenges of that sort. Now getting into is just alluded sort of what you know what could happen. Uh, you know you could challenge valuation. You could challenge uh, you know maybe the liens on these second lien notes. Uh, I guess from you know sort of least contentious to most contentious. One thing that, that sticks out is, you know, with multiple classes of warrants or multiple series of warrants, you could always shift those around a little bit uh, in, in an attempt to, you know, buy peace. Uh, if you challenge valuation, um, again, actually, let's go back really quickly to uh, slide 12 and just looking at for a second the the Philo estimated absolute priority recovery percentage in case two, that gets up over 100%, which again would, would not be allowed by the absolute priority rule. Uh, same in case three. So, you know, conceivably, a, a more junior constituency could um, argue, you know, that valuation needs to be higher, but then you get into problems of uh, just what is, you know, what's what's really moving. Um, so, for instance, you know, unsecureds could argue, well, the current valuation is too low if they're not happy with the RSA plan construct, but then you would still have to completely clear the second lien debt to obtain anything under the absolute priority rule, uh, which you know, the one exception would be if there's a successful challenge to the, the second liens and then you just have an, an extra large unsecured claims pool. Um, but, you know, I, I think a, a really great aspect here of the proposed plan construct is, again, that you're, you're sort of not going to the harsh end of the spectrum with a strictly absolute priority recovery. This, you know, divvying up a little bit of value further down the chain um, will definitely play into the decision of whether and to what extent uh, anyone who, you know, is, is not entirely satisfied further down the chain looks at, well, you could get zero or you could get some here. And then just as a final note, sort of the, the thrust of the debtor's operational restructuring uh, they, they noted in their cleansing materials put out on the first day of the case that they are targeting in their business plan 300 to $350 million of annual savings from, quote, just generally cost reduction opportunities and G&A savings. And a footnote, they say there's, you know, an additional 100 to $150 million of, of present value of potential cost savings. Um, in the RSA, there is this sort of vague, uh, quote, midstream savings provision uh, obligating the, the debtors to, you know, sort of obtain an unspecified amount of, of savings from their midstream contracts. So they've already filed two rejection motions. By the debtor's own estimates, uh, it's approximately $374 million of net cost savings over the life of those con contracts. And so I, I don't think it's not clear from the 
pleadings, but I, I don't think that's present value. That's that's undiscounted uh, future value. And they've already obtained a settlement with one counterparty. They also, interestingly, on the first day of the case, filed an adversary proceeding against FERC for a declaratory judgment that uh, the bankruptcy court has exclusive jurisdiction over assumption or rejection of contracts. This, this comes up when certain contracts have uh, filed rates or, or rates uh, regulated by FERC. Uh, FERC has, has stipulated they'll defer to the bankruptcy court for the time being. Uh, so more to more to come on on that front, but that's sort of the the, the debtor's best start. Uh, Andrew, I'll I'll turn it back over to you. Okay, thanks, John. Uh, so so that uh, concludes the slide portion of our presentation. Um, please make sure you've submitted your questions, as we'll now switch over to the Q and A portion of the webinar. And remember, a replay of today's presentation will be available on the Reorg Media page within 24 hours. So let's see what questions have come in so far. Uh, looks like this first one is for me. I can take this one. Uh, how are midstream cost savings being incorporated into the model assumptions? Uh, so Sean had talked about uh, some of the midstream contract projections. And admittedly, in the model here, we're not getting that granular. Uh, the company had guided previously to 2020 uh, gathering, processing, and transport um, costs of around uh, $6.50 per, per, per BOE, barrel of oil equivalent. And so the only thing we're doing in the model is uh, just cutting that in half. Uh, so I think we're assuming three and a quarter uh, per barrel equivalent and then just converting that to uh, per MCF. Uh, for the gas assets. Um, admittedly, it's a little oversimplified in that we're just uh, applying that to all of their operating regions. And, um, you know, but the 50% cost savings is really just uh, a placeholder, uh, assuming that some of these uh, contracts can, can be rejected or renegotiated. But again, the model sort of allows for, uh, for, the, for that uh, input to be synthesized. Uh, so next question here is for uh, Sean. Uh, what would happen if the RSA drops away? Good question. Oh, sorry, I was on mute. Uh, uh, no yeah, problem. good good question. Uh, very open-ended. I guess the, the way I would think about it is you have um, four potential voting classes. You have the... RBL, which is the only group uh, fully covered sort of from a, you know, a, a strict absolute priority standpoint by the debtor's proposed valuation, uh, sort of a good, you know, back pocket voting class to have on hand. You have the, the Philo, which based on the amount of claims hold, held is sort of dominated by the ad hoc group. Uh, the second lien, it's sort of possible from you know, what is, what is implied about Franklin's positions relative to, you know, the, the delta between um, the Philo group holdings and the RSA support. So it's, it's possible Franklin has a blocking position in the second lien. Um, so you would need, if you were reliant on that as an accepting class, you would need their consent uh, and then unsecured. So I, you know, I, I think you really just start from that perspective with the classes and then, Think about, you know, what what happens if if one class makes an argument or another. So again, sort of assuming for a second that the debtor's valuation sticks, any class below the RBL would need to consent to be impaired before any more junior class receives anything. Junior, um, you know, like under under one sort of outside case, you know, imagine if the unsecureds um, you know, really want to go after the, the second lien or just aren't happy with, with the state of the world. Um, and they, you know, they, they sort of argue more aggressively. It's, you know, very possible um, that unless they can, you know, also sort of put on a, a good challenge, I mean, to, to valuation, uh, you know, the debtor's current valuation, it's, it's pretty easily to say, oh, absolute priority rule, RBL is paid off in full, Philo gets something, um, you know, maybe a tip to the two L's and just 
forget you. If you're going to be super litigious, we don't, you know, we don't have to give you anything uh, unless you can, you know, sort of, sort of make a, a strong showing. So yeah, it's, it's sort of, it's open-ended, but I would just, I would, thinking through it, I would just think about, you know, what are the classes and what are their rights under the code? What's being offered under the RSA? Um, and then how strongly do you really want to push to challenge it, um, given, you know, sort of, again, the, the backdrop of the bankruptcy code? Great. Okay. Uh, I can take this next one. Uh, the question is, are PUDs approved undeveloped reserves being incorporated into the valuation analysis? Uh, we're taking the over or the very conservative assumption to where we're ascribing no value to PUDs or approved undeveloped reserves, um, which, you know, obviously the most conservative way to do it as we've done it uh, is to simply take the uh, existing reserves and assume, assume that no new exploration is done, no new wells are being drilled. Um, and so through that, that's sort of why we're ignoring PUDs for the time being. Uh, obviously, you know, PUDs do have some value in some uh, commodity price regimes, but, um, you know, sort of in an effort to uh, be as conservative as possible, uh, we're assigning no value to the PUDs at the moment. Okay, uh, next question uh, is for Sean. Um, let's see. Do you anticipate all second lane class holders will be given an opt-in option to join the backstop parties and participate equally in the fees and rights offering or legal challenges to preempt a conflicted uh, Franklin from skimming economics? Yeah, in, in short, I don't think anything has to change from the way it's, it's currently set up. Uh, I guess maybe taking the, the second part first, any legal challenges uh, to, to Franklin. Now, I mean, the, the distinction is with a rights offering and a backstop, anything, any compensation you're receiving in terms of fees or ability to participate um, via like the, the backstop commitment agreement. I mean, that's all on account of the new money you're putting in. Not, uh, you know, it's, it's technically not related to your prior holdings. So I, I don't think there's anything, you know, particularly that you could like strongly challenge legally um, as to whether all second lien class holders will be given the ability to opt in to join the backstop parties. Uh, I mean, that's something they could try to negotiate for, but again, I don't think there's anything that necessarily needs to change about the, the current construct. Okay, thanks. Uh, I can grab this next one. Uh, are there particular Chesapeake assets that we believe are particularly ripe for divestiture? Um, so earlier this year, the company had identified, I think it was 300 to 500 million in expected proceeds from the sale of non-core assets. But as the restructuring process started to take hold, uh, we heard less and less about that. Uh, they didn't provide any specifics beyond just stating that asset sales would consist of, uh, you know, significant land positions that were not attracting any sort of capital spend. Uh, so, you know, my read on that is of that sort of identification of 300 to 500 million, likely sort of undeveloped acreage, that sort of thing. Uh, but again, they, they've not really talked much about sort of selling some of their producing uh, producing regions, uh, you know, the Marcellus, the Hainesville, et cetera. Um, but, you know, that said, um, you know, we don't know. Uh, so everything that they've sort of indicated uh, on recent earnings calls and so forth have been sort of everything of the non-core nature. Uh, okay, so this next one is for Sean. Uh, do you have a view on process timing? Are the milestones realistic? Yeah, I, I would say I'd, I think the, the milestones are generally okay, nothing too quick. Um, three months from the petition date to file plan in the DS. 160 days. Uh, from the petition date to actually get the DS approved and then another just over a month for entry of a confirmation order. I mean, yeah, confirmation in six and a half months. Uh, I don't, I don't think it's you know, super fast. Um, there's maybe room for it to get pushed out a little bit depending on 
again, whether the RSA in, in that plan construct holds up, but I mean, yeah, six, six and a half months to, to get a plan confirmed in, in today's day and age, not a, um, not a huge deal. Okay, thanks. Uh, one more that I can grab, or another that I can grab. Uh, so the company is spending approximately $600 million per year on CapEx. In case two, at current strip pricing, does the analysis conclude that this CapEx will be unprofitable and result in a lower valuation? So, yes. So when we think about whether CapEx spend will be unprofitable, we're really relying heavily on the pro-well economics and the assumptions that we're making there as a guide to determine whether capital spend is positive or negative NPV. And again, sort of at current strip prices, which is case two shown, uh, we're showing that only the Marcellus, uh, only in the Marcellus is drilling a new well of positive NPV. So with respect to valuation, we're simply um, valuing the producing reserves in a runoff mode, which assumes no new CapEx spend are related to the drilling of new wells. But, if the company disagrees with us and they decide to spend CapEx to drill new wells uh, at current strip prices that by our calculations would be negative NPV, then, you know, by our analysis, yes, I would conclude that that would result in a, in a lower valuation. And I think, I think that's all the time we have for questions today. Uh, if you have a few minutes, please take the survey that will appear on your screen in a few minutes. Your feedback is very important to us. Thank you so much for joining us, joining us today. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg site media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. As always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe. 